Welcome to The JDO Show, a podcast about how to make your way as an independent artist in the era of collapse. My name is J. David Osborne, and I'll be talking to writers, musicians, filmmakers, and artists about how to navigate the current barriers to creativity, all while getting the most out of life. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a very special Swapcast edition of The JDO Show. I was lucky enough to have Gordon White on this week, who is the host of Rune Soup, which happens to be my favorite podcast. Gordon suggested that we make this a Swapcast, so this will be appearing on the JDO show and also on Rune Soup. Talk about a lot of cool stuff here. For those of you who are not aware of Gordon's work, he is the man behind Rune Soup, obviously the podcast, but also the website, which is a chaos magic... Uh, animist, permaculture, geopolitical soup, for lack of a better, more creative way of putting it. I was drawn to it immediately. I found his book, The Chaos Protocols, in a bookstore in Portland and picked it up, and I was really struck by the fact that there was this guy who was talking about financial intelligence in such a erudite and astute way and just like it's nothing dropping this idea at the end of the chapter that psi phenomena are real so you have a guy who's talking about the economy and how to prepare for coming you know collapse and how to sort of protect yourself from all that and then oh yeah and by the way uh psychics are real and i bought the book. It was called The Chaos Protocols. It's about chaos magic, which focuses on uh, blending a lot of different ideas together to see what works, Um, doing your best not to be too appropriative along the way. But the audacity of that writing, um, rather than the wildness of the thought, was what really struck me. There was a a writing voice that was very clear and self-assured and lacking the goofiness of a lot of writers in the magical slash conspiracy slash whatever you want to call this space. So over time, Rune Soup became one of my very favorite blogs. The three books Gordon wrote became manuals, in a sense, for my own magical development. I became a premium member of the website and have taken every single class and have remained mostly quiet about the rune soup stuff besides mentioning it every now and again on this podcast and other places. But I think that this introduction to Gordon's thought is really, really great. We touch on some current events through the lens of the invisibles, the mid to late 90s comic book graphic novel, epic, chaos, magic, hyper-sigil, written by uh, another one of my personal heroes, Grant Morrison. Folks, I am back in the podcasting game. I would like for you to please subscribe to this show. If you're coming over here from the Rune Soup crowd, I talk to authors about all manner of things, but I tend to only really get authors on that I have a good rapport with, um, so that it's not one of those kind of stilted and boring writing conversations. But my main thrust, my main mission with the JDO show is to have 
a couple of laughs with some really cool people whose work I really admire uh, to talk about sort of complex artistic ideas and to have you leave the show after you've listened to it feeling like you're energized and feeling like you want to go out and create stuff and make stuff. I want this podcast to become a generative thing rather than uh, something that could slip into navel-gazing. So I think that this episode, the one that I did before this one with Kelby Losak, and the ones that are to come with guests that are a surprise, but I've already got one in the can, um, I think that those conversations do that. I think that we get to know the people, the writers, a little bit better than we did at the beginning, and when we leave, we feel like um, like we're ready to make some shit. So yeah, subscribe to the show, tell people about the show, um, give it a five-star rating on iTunes, that would be great. Um, also... Uh, check out my other podcast that's on the same channel. So if you subscribe to this show, you'll see those episodes. But they're labeled with something called No Country. That is uh, my new venture where I talk to one other person, who's Chris Sacknessum, across uh, many, many episodes. We've been getting some great feedback on that one so far, and um, eventually that'll have its own home. But for now, it is a part of the JDO Show channel. I've done a lot of errands today. I got a couple of new tires on my car and I cut the lawn with my real mower, the manual mower with the little spinning blade. So I'm a little pooped, but I've been kind of walking around with this drunk, happy, goofy smile on my face all day long because of this conversation that Gordon and I had. I enjoyed it. I got a lot out of it. Um, and I think you will too. So, um, yeah, enjoy. J. David Osborne, the next Swapcast. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing really good. It's uh, afternoon here in Oklahoma. Uh, somebody was weed whacking their lawn, but they stopped. So that's good. But dude, I am stoked to be on. This is my favorite podcast. I'm doing a oh. Swapcast with my favorite podcast. <laughs> so um, you're a big fan of the last Swapcast with, the, with Hermetics, right? With James. And that's another one of your favorites. So I decided maybe maybe I just daisy chain through Swapcast now. If someone emails me and, or messages me and is like, that Swapcast is really good. I'm like, cool. Do you want to do one? I think, that, I think yeah. this is my new one. <laughs> yeah, uh, model of the future. Exactly. Uh, you get the you get the Rune Soup question, of course, because um, we'll talk about your podcasts once you give me the weird kid question. But it is a swapcast. Um, however, I hit the record button on Zoom, so um, that means I take priority, I think, somehow. I think but um, David, were you a weird kid? Um, I was once I hit about 12. So I called my mother and asked her about this yesterday because I couldn't remember I just sort of remember general kid stuff, you know, being outside, playing with friends. Um, and she said that I wasn't, but that's because she's a sweet lady. But my first real memory of weirdness was when I hit about 12. My dad was in the military and he got stationed in Germany. And we were in, we were in Neubrücke, Germany. And he, uh, we lived in a repurposed German barracks that were around, you know, in the forties and thirties. And, the way that the apartment complex worked was that each apartment was about four rooms, unless you lived on the top floor. And in that case, they broke down the dividing wall and you got one super long apartment complex, like the super long hall, which as a kid I thought was super tight because I could bowl and stuff. But as soon as we moved in, 
I got really bad vibes because of course I picked the room that was as far back as you could possibly get it. And um, I started waking up with general feelings of dread and noticing that my books had been moved around and things like that. And at a certain point, I was leaving the house with my family once and I turned around to turn the, the final light off. And when I looked down the hallway, I saw a, I saw a ghost floating there, kind of like the, um, you know, the librarian in Ghostbusters. Yeah, very so well. Like Speaking of um, traumatic childhood experiences. <laughs> <laughs> when I used to watch Ghostbusters, I used to have to fast forward the very beginning yeah. parts. There were two things that I would fast forward. It would be that. And in Raiders of the Lost Ark, when Marion falls into the, the skeleton pit with the snakes and stuff, I, just, I couldn't handle that shit as right. a kid. So but I anyway, had to fast forward it from my little brother and I'd be like, ha ha ha, you're such a chicken. But like, really, <laughs> I didn't want to see it either. But I'm like, should we fast forward? And he says, yes. And in my head, I'm like, thank God. We'll fast oh, forward thank God. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I saw a ghost standing there in, you know, German soldier, you know, kind of enlisted uh, uniform. And I kind of didn't mention it for a really long time, but that was when the real weirdness started. And then in high school, um, my friends and I ate a lot of peyote and shit just got weird from there. Peyote and um, San Pedro, right? So mescaline based, uh, based plants. And um, my peyote experience in my friend Eric's apartment when I was about 20 uh, led to me becoming a very, very weird adult that kind of kicked off a synchronicity storm that that didn't actually end until about two years ago so yeah I guess I was a weird kid um but I got on pretty well at school and stuff like I wasn't alone or anything like that no fair enough so did you uh, presumably you had the discussion with at least some family members about so the place we lived in Germany was haunted, right? Like, are they like, yeah, 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 we saw some shit too. Did you all have one of those family moments where it's like, wow, it was way more haunted than we thought? Yeah, so it was, it was my brother. So um, my mom says that there were some, definitely some weird vibes there. My dad was never there because he was mostly in Bosnia at the time. Um, but when I would talk about that with my brother, he'd be like, oh yeah, man, that was the, the time where I would just hear uh, uh, whispers and voices and stuff. He's like, I never went past like the fourth room because there was just strange vibes over there, which is interesting because past the fourth room would have been its own apartment at one point, perhaps. Ah, yeah. um, so that in particular, I think could have been the site of some sort of paranormal uh, happening. But I guess, you know, I've always kind of, um, I've always been, I was pretty much an animist since I was a little kid. I've always kind of just thought that things were alive, even, you know, staircases and, you know, trees and well, trees. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I guess the nature of this question is that as people answer it, they begin to discover that they are a weird kid. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, people are more familiar with podcasts now, but um, in the first year or so, I mean, you know, this, you've been doing it for a while. Uh, if they haven't been on a show before, they get a little bit nervous and they've got their notes ready or whatever. And, and it's just a nice little trick to go, well, actually, the thing you are both the most expert and least expert on is yourself. And, and it mm -hmm. kind of loosens people up because they can say, oh, yeah, one time I set fire to like, you know, um, the rocking horse at a kid's birthday party or whatever. Like, you know, okay. Didn't mean it like that, but all right, <laughs> go off. Um, yeah. So here's the thing, because I had some kind of, well, definitely ghostly um, encounters as a, as a pre-pubescent or edge of pubescence there, I guess, in your case. But like, 
I don't know if I compartmentalize. I think I just hit a moment where I'm like, oh, well, that stuff is real. And and like you, I did okay. I did quite good in school, frankly, and wasn't a loner or whatever. Um, but that was kind of a, was it like that for you? Because you just went from 12 to 20. Um, oh, well, Was there yeah, a moment well, where it's like, oh, well, I guess, like obviously it would have been scary at the time, but like after you'd come back from Germany or whatever, it's just like, well, now I'm a kid who knows ghosts are real. Is it sort of like that? Sort of, yeah. I mean, I went through uh, the dark night of the soul for about six or seven years until that those peyote experiences because I was raised Baptist. So I went through the same kind of thing that I think most Baptist kids do where you just try to, you know, I, I, I went to college and I had a, a professor who was a um, sort of a student of Daniel Dennett. And so he basically, I thought he was like the coolest guy ever. So I, I was, I was like, yes, this is actually everything is nothing. This is perfect. Yeah. Nothing's alive. This is great. Uh, so that led to, you know, the depressed goth teen years. Um, and then it only came back around with the, uh, entheogens. And what was it about that particular peyote experience at Eric's place when you were 20? Was it something that was on it or was it, the, as you said, the sink storm, was it subsequent things that happened? So this is kind of a long story, but we got time, right? We okay, got cool. the time. All right. I'll tell you the whole thing. So I'm at his place. I had just broken up with my girlfriend at the time. Who's now my wife. Um, and I basically ate all of this uh, uh, peyote powder, which is really gross. So you basically just put water in it and it becomes a kind of the consistency of a slug. Yeah. But, uh, but we put cinnamon on it to make it taste good, which did not work at all. No. Nope. <laughs> it was like, uh, yeah, I almost threw up a few times, but basically what happens with a bag of crushed up San Pedro cactus, I kept saying peyote, but it was San Pedro. Um, is that the mescaline is not evenly distributed within the powder. So my friends didn't get that much off of it, but I think I got the mega dose. So this was Eric's first apartment. So, you know, 20 year old dude, no furniture, nothing. So I'm laying on the floor and he has an overhead projector and he's putting plastic Ziploc bags full of food dye on the overhead projector and looking at that, like, well, it's pretty trippy. Right. And, uh, Eventually everybody goes to bed and my eyes kind of snap open and I see these two uh, like gray aliens standing in the room with me. And I start getting these telepathic messages from the aliens about basically my life situation and how I need to get everything correct. Like I need to fix stuff in my life or it's not going to be right. So they show me something called the weapon of the apocalypse, which is just these three shapes. It's kind of a dot, a U, and then a kind of like a, a little bridge type shape. And of course, in the trip, this is, you know, four dimensional, amazing, crazy stuff. But when I woke up the next day and, and tried to show my friends the, the picture, it's just, it was just these three shapes. And so everybody had a good, you know, laugh about that. Like, oh yeah, man, the aliens really, showed you something there, right? So I kind of continue uh, my fuckery. And eventually after, you know, growing up a little bit and, you know, begging my girlfriend, then wife now for forgiveness, uh, she took me back and we started building a life together. And we were going to take a trip to Seoul in South Korea back in the beautiful days when you could do stuff like that. 
Um, and so when we were planning our trip, I got this thought in my head and it was just these two words. It was chun chun, right? And I don't know if you do uh, dumb couple stuff with your partner, but I just started saying chun chun to everything that she would say. I don't know, just, I thought it was funny at the time. So we're planning this trip and uh, we're kind of looking around at uh, where we wanna go. And at the time I'd, I'd been writing a short story about this mime that can kill people uh, by using, you know, like invisible weapons. So it'll kind of be dragging around a mallet or something like that and it'll swing and then the person's head will explode. It's a lot of fun. But we're looking around and she says, hey, come look at this. And right when we're gonna be in Korea, there is going to be a mime festival at a place called Chuncheon, right? So I said, well, we have to go to that. Like that's, that's a sign. So we go to Chuncheon, we go to the mime festival and it's really, it's kind of lame actually. Um, we see a few- A, a mime festival is lame. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on. But this Chuncheon is like this small little town outside of Seoul. And, you know, there were all these uh, French people around, but it was an actual mime school. So Chuncheon has a mime school there. And all the flyers and like the symbol for the school was the weapon of the apocalypse. It was the exact shape, the circle, the U, and then the bridge, right? And it actually kind of looks like a little stick figure, like raising its hands up. So I took that as a kind of time loop thing, right? where I was kind of sending myself a message back because when we had gone to Korea, that was when everything sort of finally settled down in our relationship. <clears throat> so yeah, I just took that as kind of a, as a closed loop, right? Sure. So have you worked out why it's the weapon of the apocalypse? Like, no, I no. Well, I mean, who knows? I mean, like right after that, we came back <clears throat> and about two years later, the apocalypse is kind of happening, I guess. A apocalypse, a sort of apocalypse. So honestly, no, I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's possible too that when I was kind of hearing these these voices, I misinterpreted or, <clears throat> or Well, something. I just wonder, like, because there's something exquisitely correct about this, that the art of mime, it might be what they were referring to because mm. that's the weapon of the apocalypse. So the- It's shutting um, the fuck up. Well, kind of, but also um, playing with the real and the unreal. And it's, so there's this sort of a kind of, there's just a game aspect to it and, and an annoying French game. <laughs> Reality is an annoying French game. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, just, I would like think that. Like, I think there's something to sit with on, if the weapon of the apocalypse is, is some iconography pointing at a school of mime, uh, yeah. Uh, maybe it'll continue to unpack. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a question for you. Go for I know it. That, I know that you are, that you just finished a new book. Congratulations on that, by the way. Well, I actually haven't finished it. We have just announced it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh yeah. boy. That's troublesome, sir. It is. It is. Uh, but what I, I was joking, well, not joking, but when, um, when we were arranging the timing for it, um, I said to Peter and Akistus, if you guys don't announce it, I actually won't finish it. Um, mm -hmm. Like it's at that level. I'm not like, well, I think I might write a book. Like I've been 
um, fucking with it for about 18 months now, but now th this is the summer where it turns itself into a book correctly. Uh, my summer, not your summer. And, uh, and yeah, so it's announced. It's mostly done, <laughs> but it's not done. Well, that's my question. So you blog prolifically, pretty much. I mean, like the last few blogs that you've done have been, what, 10,000 words each? Yeah. And they take a week each time. Yeah. 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 So what, what is it about the, the blogging that seems to just kind of roll off, you know, your fingers, basically, versus the, the book that's taken 18 months? The book is... Uh, the book required some adventures that hadn't happened yet. So it is an exploration of animism as we've been exploring it with premium members and, and on various shows and so on. But because it's that, it has to be explored in the context of uh, epistemologies or ways of validating truth that are either phenomenological or ex at least experiential. So that was mostly why. And the adventures have happened. Well, there's actually one left to go. Um, but that was, the book is a story that is, is based in things that have happened in... Um, the book wrote itself by me doing things, essentially. Now, um, blogs uh, or blog posts are different to that. And weirdly, as the, the, the writing and the, the planning and whatever for the book started to scale up, so did the compulsion to actually do long form blog posts again um, because before it's sort of, and it's true. And, and, I, and when we're doing a podcast now, I love podcasts and so on, but there's just something about something utopian or, or now, cause it's so long ago, like a decade or so um, bittersweet and enjoyable about sitting somewhere like a cafe or a pub and opening up the laptop and tapping out an old timey blog post. Like it, it's, it's almost quaint. Uh, and I think it's one of the, I think they're coming back. I think people are reading more and more of these things. There's some sort of hybrid form of um, AV in the sense of podcasts and video and whatever, and, and actual blog posts coming back. I think as what passes for mainstream media collapses under its own idiocy, there's something mm -hmm. additionally authentic about the blog post form but I, it turns out I can't write books without also writing blog posts and I kind of get that because I have questions for you about writing and, and its importance and and so on but I get that I get that if you are in a, if you were in a writing phase um, almost like in an embodied sense like if if many of your hours of the day are tappity 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 uh, the mind can get tired but it's the, the fingers still want to type. So what, what I like about doing multiple projects at once, like a book and, and blog post that take a week or so, is that you sort of tap out on one writing project at like the three hour mark, like that is enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> actually, mm -hmm. I can keep going on a complete, like your mind is full again if you move to another topic. And, uh, and that, um, that I quite like. Right, right. Well, that's, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I was just kind of wondering about that. So basically, so you have this, what is the kind of, general idea of the book wait is this is that bad juju to talk about that i don't know um well the book's called animistic so it is going to be a uh, a presentation of a 21st century quote-unquote western animism so it's it's the it's the um the imaginal spirit and embodied um tools and positions for that um so it's the 
ways of thinking rather than the products of thought, which we spent a, a lot of time with. So that's the book. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't say more than that at this stage because yes, too too uh, superstitious. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, dude, I I have screwed myself so many times by even tweeting about things that are going to happen. I don't know why, but my life just sort of works that way. If I if I tell anybody that I have anything cooking, even if it's three quarters of the way done, if I say something, my my brain does that immediate thing where it's like, oh, good, you did it, you're done. You got the little uh, dopamine hits. You're good. We're good to go. Yeah, we can move on to the next thing now. And like, wait, wait, no, not quite. Yeah, and and the superstition around the sharing before it's done isn't an expectation that someone will steal from you, right? But it just kind no. of it messes with it. It mess, just messes with reality. Like it, it it fucks with your own flow, and also, I don't know. It just doesn't seem right. It, it's strange. Uh, yeah. Well, it's kind of like, it's, it's basically, I think, just validating what you do before you actually have the thing finished, which is a big, I mean, that's an even larger problem with social media in general. Um, I mean, you can extend that not even from writing, but, you know, if you say, for example, like, I'm going to paint my house or something, then you kind of don't feel like painting the house because everybody told you, oh, yeah, that seems like a good idea. And it seeming like a good idea is pretty much on par with the idea of doing it itself. Like we make no real distinction between those two things. Yeah. Uh, cognitively, we, we can't observe the difference when you actually like look at brain scans, but I think you're, I think there's something gnostically correct about what you're saying, which is we have at this moment lost completely the ability and speaking, we're going to be speaking about the invisibles. It's that kind of um, like when Sir Miles is interrogating King Mob, and he makes mm-hmm. him think that his fingers have been cut off, but it's actually just in his mind. And it's little bits of paper that say finger and, and he's uh-huh. dropping them on the ground and it's, and it's not his finger. Uh, and there's that, that playing with, we can't tell the difference between this sort of um, iconic digital messaging and, and the real thing. And like, we literally can't as organisms do that, which is why, especially at the moment, social media gets so dangerous because if um, your brain reacts to people saying bad things about you in the same way as if you're being physically assaulted. And it also does that when you say bad things about you in your own head. So it's mm. fucked up. Like um, Twitter causes brain violence. Like it's. <laughs> <laughs> it really fucking does. It does, dude. That's 100% true. I, I think brain violence is the best way to think of Twitter because I was even thinking of it in terms of the schizophrenic scattered nature I, just, I don't think that we're supposed to see so many disparate thoughts and arguments and counter arguments and narratives and counter narratives all within, you know, a minute and 30. No. As soon as you wake up, I, I almost tweeted something mean at, at a big author today, but then I realized that I had messed up because I turned my phone on as soon as I woke up and I'd been so good for a week. I'd been good. I hadn't been touching it, but I just absentmindedly flicked on Twitter and I saw, you know, somebody saying something dumb and it's the fight or flight. I have to go get them. I have to correct this error. Yeah. And the other thing that's coming in with the brain damage is um, being in a perpetual state of fear permanently alters electrochemical routes in the brain. So this year has given us brain damage, which we are treating by spending a lot of time on Twitter. Now that is just can't oh be more wrong. <laughs> right? Oh my God. I know. I know. You know what really... Um, kills my soul. Cause you expect 
the archonic forces that, that rule the world to lie to you and try to make you afraid. Also another point of the invisibles. Um, so you expect that. You expect people like Tony Fauci. And who's that WHO guy? That gangster guy? I forget his name now. But um, anyway, you expect that. But what really kills me is when I'm walking my dog outside and I see somebody who's about my age, uh, so I'm in my early 30s, riding a bicycle, uh, wearing a mask, because that means the brain virus has taken hold. Because yeah. there, there's, there's no world, even if you have completely swallowed hook, line, and sinker, uh, the narrative that's been given to us, that the mask being on while you're riding a bicycle outside in the summer in Oklahoma, you, like these people have taken this next step. Like it's, really, it's got its claws in deep. And I don't know, I don't think anyone comes back from it because we were um, DMing about um, some people sharing heartbreaking tweets about things like my sister's still washing, putting on gloves and washing groceries when they bring them into the house. And and this is in Britain where I think the, the latest numbers were something like you have a one, one in two million chance <laughs> mm-hmm. of dying from this uh, collection of symptoms that has a name. I'm trying to be like, uh, I'm trying to use the word less and less on shows that end up on YouTube. <laughs> oh, that's really smart. That's really like smart. Yeah. Part of rest, the in, rest in peace to Dell. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we're kind of talking about like narrative because I think the narrative, as you say, even if you buy it, which is just impossible now, like the, the because the official version version has changed um, however many times it needs to to perpetuate the the great resetting that we're living through so even mm-hmm. if you somehow manage to get it all of that in your head as a coherent narrative that you believe which i don't think anyone does it is just a delivery mechanism for the fear <laughs> that's mm-hmm. the bit you look at and go this is a delivery mechanism for fear and i'm not sure i'm not sure how people are going to walk themselves back from it um i, I don't know how if you're here we are in early to mid-September, and if you're still washing cans that have come from the supermarket before, while wearing gloves before you put them in your house, how do you come back from that? You don't. That's the problem. Uh, well, I mean, there is stuff like CBT that can maybe work for people. I think if you're an OCD doctor, you're about to have a huge influx of clients. Um, but all CBT really is when it comes to OCD is ignoring it. Until yeah. people are ready to ignore the thing. I mean, I just saved people potentially, you know, tens of thousands of dollars by for getting a counselor. All you, all they really tell you to do is ignore it and just get through it. But um, until people are ready to do that, do you think? Do you think that people like to be afraid? I think it's deeper than that. I think they um, they're afraid that how they see the world isn't right. Um, mm-hmm. And and it's, that's it, how a lot of this works because I'm, I'm telling you in the back of everyone's head by now, I mean, we were, you know, we can chuff a little bit about being reasonably correct the whole way through this, but by now, even in the people washing groceries, um, mm-hmm. they know something isn't right about it. And that's, that's the fear because you now have to live in a world where, well, but like presidents and things are telling me this stuff. And I, and, and so you have to live in a world where you you have to live in a world where that is a reality. And, and most people haven't faced that. And they've had to face that at the same time as 
um, a, a health incident that has affected some people. So that I think people, I don't know if they necessarily like fear. I think what's happening here is that it's, that it, it's um, fear is better or preferable. Being in fear is better or preferable than the bigger fear, which is um, having to dramatically update how they see the world, possibly for the worse. I mean, I don't think it is because invisibles, but mm-hmm. possibly for the worse. Uh, and, and I think that's, I do think there are people coming back to the idea of this being um, the same kind of digital control archon that um, we see explored perfectly in, in the invisibles. Um, I do think there are people who enjoy or take pleasure in the, um, the application of state violence um, because they agree with it. That's really dark. I think people like that. Um, I think people like, I think enough people have to like tyranny for it to work. And and again, going back to Twitter, you can kind of see that um, with apparent leftists um, championing biopolitical state violence. Um, and, and that is not a left position <laughs> to, yeah, yeah. to really um, underline it. And I think that's it. I think there's um, this entity. And if you, even if you just think of it as a collection of, ideas and positions because people don't get that i use technocracy all the time when i'm talking about it and i mean it quite literally as an ideology it used to have a magazine like in the 1930s there were like technocracy technocracy magazines and conferences and so on like it is a specific set of principles that is applying managerialism to human behavioral change like it's it, it had proponents and magazines and things when i say it i mean it quite literally and if you even if you want to quote unquote just consider that a metaphor um, or like the idea that people ideas have people rather than um, people having ideas as a metaphor you can look at that as an entity and you should because um, you get a reframing and repositioning of, of how to be in the world when you can see that as something like the king of all tears in in the mm-hmm. invisibles uh, and it's and because um, these books are, or these graphic novels are essentially perfect. There's a repeated descriptions of how these entities um, breach into our world. And it's sort of like they, um, their human acolytes create the bacterial conditions for them to be able to um, kind of geometrize down into, into our experience of them. And that's literally the 20th century, right? So even if you want to just use it as an unhaunted metaphor, it's a useful one. I totally agree. Yeah, because that's sort of how reading the invisibles again. So the last time that I read it was probably about five or six years ago, which I think was right before I found rune soup. And that must have been what made rune soup click for me so well, because my brain was was kind of there that had been my second or third read through for for listeners. I'm a Grant Morrison super fan. I'm in fact, I'm such a Grant Morrison super fan that I went to Morrison con in 2012 in Vegas at the, uh, at the Hard Rock Hotel, which is just awesome. If you're gonna go to Vegas, you wanna do it as butt rock trashy as you possibly can. And the Hard Rock Hotel is the way to that do that. Definitely it. <laughs> yeah, it, it was great. And in a way, you know, it kind of suits Grant. Yeah, I think that's, so. that's, that's kind of his thing, but it was awesome. You know, it was, it was uh, two or three days and he would read, uh, you know, poetry while the, what's that guy's name from, my Chemical Romance, the, um, oh, I know the Gerard, Gerard Way, Gerard Way. Uh, he would like do the music and stuff. Um, 
and it was cool. It had a cool roster of people. There was like pre-canceled James Gunn and, uh, there's another guy who got canceled. A lot of people got canceled who were at Morrison Con. Anyway. Um, so I was basically primed for rune soup because as I was going back through it for this conversation, I was like, Oh, this is stuff that Gordon talks about all the time. So you, you've sort of adopted the, the invisibles universe into your, uh, into your lexicon. And when yep. you talk about things like the archons and, 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 you know, the aeons and the invisibles and, and how they get into, how they control everybody through fear, because do you think now's a good time to maybe explain what the invisibles is for anybody who doesn't know? Yeah, sure. Um, give, give, let's, let's, uh, let's hear your version of it. And then you can tell us about your tat. Oh yeah. My tat. Cool. Which tat do you want the skull smoking a blunt or the, the snake? The naked lady turning into a motorcycle. <laughs> oh, that one. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So the invisibles, uh, came out in 1994. The first issue did, I believe 1994. Um, and, it was about a group of uh, anarchist sort of rebels who were, you know, nonconformists. Um, it was cribbed heavily for a film called The Matrix, which I think a lot of people have seen. Um, so you sort of start off with this kid named Dane who uh, meets this uh, old wizard. I believe it's in an abandoned subway tunnel and he starts to like learn all this cool magic stuff. And he gets in, in, introduced to this group of freedom fighters called the invisibles. And basically the best way that I could describe it because the series is so chaotic, um, literally every two or three pages, you're flipping to a different time or a different character or some other, some crazy shit that's going on. Essentially the invisibles job is to fight uh, power and control wherever it pops up Correct. and and there are these cells all over the place so there's not one particular bad guy there's kind of a rotating cast there's there, sir miles is there through pretty much the whole thing he's a kind of a, a british uh james bond type sort of a, a bond in retirement who has now decided to uh team up with um the archons to to bring something called the moon child uh into existence see how see how troubled this is how you can go down so, well, so many how, freaking how, rabbit holes i describe it um because he, he's got the whole empire never ended stuff and and the first issue where um dane meets tom Bedlin and, and so on they also go back in time and bring the marquis de sade to the present right so mm -hmm. it it looks chaotic because it is a description of a continuous battle so exactly. one of the things that i like about it is that it frees you from um, the myths of of despair, but also the myths of your power. So electionism and and all this kind of crap that we're stuck with now. Like go and fucking vote for Biden. Like kill me, my God. Um, mm -hmm. But it it just it removes all of that and makes you realize you're you are playing at, in this bit of time um, a role that has lasted for thousands of years, um, and it is mm -hmm. the, it is the being. Um, agents for the promotion of of life and joy and sex and and all that squishy stuff they literally bring the marquis de sade into their version of the present in in the first one and he he was or is an invisible so it's this it puts you in communion with the the true freedom fighters of history and that's really empowering that's like oh i'm i'm actually part of that legacy and it's not just a legacy it's because grant's very good at 
playing with time. Um, it's not just a legacy, it's they're doing it at the same time we are. <laughs> mm-hmm, and, it, mm-hmm. and it kind of puts you, so Grant describes this kind of cosmic context. And, and I think people, if they're not aware of that, because it, it is, when Chris was on the show, Chris Knowles was on the show, we're talking about this in some of Alan Moore's books. He's like, it is like drinking from the firehose. And that's one of the good things about it. Like if you want to, if you think you might be interested in chaos magic, well, you aren't until you've read these, but they're actually quite a good thing to start on because you, uh, it offers like the most crazy rabbit holes, but it's, it's also, this is Grant's other power is he can, I don't do, use words like fiction and nonfiction because they're products of a um, broken theory of mind. So I use the word story, but he can write a story that allows you to explore story. And, and then he does that with Flex Mentalo, but he does that in this and, and, and it gives you again, that, that position on reality that can kind of be that first step into becoming an invisible, I suppose. Yeah. And Flex Mentalo is a book that I love a lot, but I, it, it's kind of held up as this sort of pure distilled uh, Morrison book because it's very short and kind of hits all of his themes very clearly. I think he does it better in The Invisibles though Same. because it's so so kind of seamlessly integrated into the plot. So at any given time, uh, The Invisibles could be a comic book written by a guy named Kirk Morrison. It could be a novel written by a man named Gideon Stargrave. It could be a novel written by a character named Ragged Robin when she's in college and she's in this kind of strange float tank made out of living language. Um, So at any given time, you're made to wonder, you know, how deep inside the rabbit hole are you going? That's kind of what makes The Invisibles such a fascinating read is you feel like it's like an acid trip. So every acid trip that I've ever been on, I feel like I'm going sort of deeper and deeper. And it's like, okay, you know, now I'm hanging out with my friends and we're laughing and this is kind of a good time. And then I'm going outside and, oh, wow. Yeah. The grass is really And then I'm going deeper and I'm like a minstrel in the woods playing a lute. Right. (laughs) And then I'm even deeper and, you know, and I'm back in time and I'm, I'm somebody else. Probably the most intense acid trip I ever had was, was 10 hits with two of my friends. Um, And we, decided that the way that we were going to to drink our beers was to pour them on each other and and break all the 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 plants in the house and put the potting soil all over us so you know you go deeper and deeper and deeper and and i'm in this you know a standing inch of beer that's that's purple and green and all these crazy colors and then i remember like coming back out of it and we're all standing there in our underwear covered in potting soil and we were just like woof well boys we really did it again and that's kind of what the invisibles feels like. It feels like sometimes you come up for air and you're sort of in like a quote unquote reality, but then you just go right back down again. It's an acid trip that keeps pulling you down. And I think the one of the things and, the, and maybe the principal thing that anchors it into reality so that it works as um, an antigen or whatever is we're, we're talking about the invisibles being the comic or graphic novel in your hand, um, a novel written by this person or that person who's in it or, um, and so on. But also because he was young and you could make money in comics at the time, Grant wrote this more or less on the road, like in the sense of traveling around the world and, and um, dressing in drag and living in Soho briefly and, and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So he's entangled in it, which you need to do to 
create a story that is about story um, and, mm-hmm. and, and stories implications for reality. And so there's that extra layer of it that, um, that allows it to be a portal. Right. And I think that is, um, that, that's, it's, and because of that, it, as we, I mean, we're DMing over the last few days to talk about it. And you're saying like, it's so 2020 relevant. And I'm like, well, it is cause it's a spell. <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> he he mm-hmm. did something. He did this kind of like multi-year ritual by, um, by exploring how um, being and writing story, kind of coming back to animistic actually, by exploring how being and writing are co-implicated in, in, in everything. And, and I think that's, the, that's why you look at it and go, this is the perfect encapsulation of villains. Because yeah, I talk about the Archons and so on. In the first book, first couple of them, the quote unquote bad guy, well, they're certainly the bad guys, but the villains are called the conspiracy and that is perfect because it's the human and more than, and um, more than human together. So it's the humans and the archons uh, and it is sometimes the humans and it's sometimes the humans who know they're working for the archons and it's sometimes the archons, but you have this frame of it where the bad guys are the badness like technocracy or whatever. Uh, and you can call it the conspiracy and you don't have to do, and this is in fact, um, a shortcoming of conspiracy culture. You don't necessarily have to get the um, the conspiracy wall going. And you're, okay, well, he's worshiping this, and and that's the queen's cousin, and and so he <laughs> is in charge of the sheriffs in the U.S. And I think that, like, when you call it the conspiracy, you actually move into magical language. Like, it's a spell that at least well it doesn't contain them, but allows you to see them clearly because you just need, there's a sufficient amount of detail there, which is, it is both human and iconic. And you don't need, you don't need to work out like is something wearing Fauci or, or Bill Gates. Like you, you don't need that necessarily. And he starts there. I mean, it gets um, dizzyingly ornate. And I think he's, it's a Gnostic gospel in the sense that no one that I have read, and I've read most Gnostic texts that are available in English. Um, no one has come quite as close as Grant in his descriptions of what archons feel like, but and and what they what they are when they come closer, right? Like it's mm, it's astounding. Yeah. Um, and you read it like the the sickness and the fact that basically humans fell into despair, and that's what attracted the despairing ones kind of closer to our dimensions, and 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 then the, this whole thing is. Um, exquisite it's exquisite in its characterization or correct characterization of evil and when I say correct is it's so you can see it Um, Mm -hmm. see it you're 80% of the way to freedom yeah and the thing about the archons I want to kind of go back to what you were talking about the conspiracy and it not being that important whether or not something's writing Fauci Um, the thing that the archons sort of want to do is they want they can't create anything because they exist outside of time. So they can't, they can't grow. So what they sort of want to do is to come into our reality and kind of feed it with artificiality. There's literally a character that shows up in book six, who is uh, a blind guy, right? So it's, it's the literal blind God, right? Who's like coming down to, you know, to creation. And so they're essentially, uh, they hate, uh, freedom and, and, and people being happy and having fun because that's not 
they can't build anything that way. They can only sort of build things out of despair. And that kind of, to me, when you look at the conspiracy that's going on right now, you know, when you look at a character like Bill Gates and you think, well, what is his sort of end game? Well, he, d he doesn't really have one, I guess. And maybe if you asked him, it might be something that in his mind is actually pretty good, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter because he's part of a, he's part of an arconic force that is an overall net negative for the world. That's going to lead to things like contact tracing and, uh, yeah. you know, not, not even, not even health passports, but I mean, what's the next step after that? It's, you know, it's social wellness passports. You see them trying to do that now and say that, you know, racism is a health crisis. Well, who determines who's racist enough to travel, right? Or who's not racist enough to travel? It's, um, I think, again, this is a fair, and I, you know, I'm, as Tim Dillon would say, by the way, I've got something else to say about him, like when he was on Rogan, he's like, look, I'm a conspiracy guy, but, and that's me to a T. Uh, <laughs> I think people miss, they, they look at, and by the way, conspiracy is, um, acting in class interest. Like I, I wrote a big long post about this, as did Charles Eisenstein, that this used to be a left critique. Like socialism is officially a conspiracy theory. Like, and I mean that to its credit, because what it is saying is that the predatory class will act in class interest. And that's the whole point <laughs> mm -hmm. of, of left critiques is to point that out. And, uh, and that is definitionally conspiracy, right? Because conspiracy is to breathe together. It's to act in class interest. So when I say it, I mean it like that. And I think on conspiracy land, we look at the fact that um, a big part of what uh, a big part of the funding, if you will, of the great reset comes from the amount of money that's going to be made already is being made um, in medical insurance, because we've just had half a year where you've had to pay insurance premiums and no one's had any surgery. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, the actual profits in, in medical insurance are fucking through the roof in 2020. Um, the other thing, so people are like, oh, he's going to make a whole bunch of money off vaccines. That's why they're doing it. And I'm like, it's, he is going to make a whole bunch of money off vaccines. That's not why they're doing it. This comes back to your point. Like he thinks he's doing the right thing. Um, he thinks that the world is better under management and that is technocracy. And it's there, uh, Mr. Quimper, who's probably the, um, most interesting of the villains or, um, archons. Certainly the creepiest. Yeah. Well, he says when he's explaining in um, Kissing Mr. Quimper in, in volume two, he's explaining to the Invisibles, you forgot you were parts of a machine. And because of your forgetfulness, the machine is inefficient and mm -hmm. they are there to correct our functioning. So that's technocracy in a, to a T, right? Like it's, um, it is looking at the glorious life ways and flourishing in all its ups and downs of mankind and saying this is inefficient and it needs to be under management. It needs to be under specific scientific um, machine-like artificial intelligent management um, to efficientize it, right? And that mm -hmm. is the bad guy. And that's why it's really good to, to sort of keep it quantum as the conspiracy uh, because you don't need to, it, it allows you the freedom to conceptualize that however you were ready to conceptualize it um, because it is actually a lot more David Icke than people realize. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't matter. Like if you can just bracket it as that, it, it, um, it gives you the, the freedom to be okay. Well, so 
how do I position myself around it? Right. And that becomes the problem with any ideology. And that becomes the major problem with Twitter is that any ideology at its heart has a managerial system behind it that is ready to go. They're locked and loaded. And if only they can get their particular managerial system in place with whatever kind of system of control they want, then the world will be a better place. And that is tricky on both sides because you want to be against the things in the world that are quote unquote bad. But what I think a lot of people don't get is that the worst thing is that arconic desire to control. And that, yeah. that's, it's, 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 it's tough. It's tough Kung Fu to learn, you know? It is because when people, and this is certainly what control looks like, but when people hear control, they think um, gulags. Um, mm-hmm. They think actual um, physical application of state violence. Like, um, and by the way, we've experienced that. We're actually stuck inside our homes. So that's happened. But control is... Um, particularly for um, technocrats, it's far more elegant than that. And people don't realize when they're doing it. So this is kind of what I was chatting to James about speaking of hermetics, like Mark Fisher's idea of the, uh, the vampire's castle is, or, and how one escapes it is that even when you think, and, and you are on the good guy's side, if you want there to be things like less racism in the world, obviously. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, however, you're making the world worse if you are violently attacking any experience of um, differing ethnic or cultural identity outside of this materialist bourgeois formulation that we find um, on Twitter. But like, that's the vampire's castle thing. It's literally a stealing of, um, it's a stealing from the working class of ideas and and that and it's it's done in a way that uh is archonizable right and that's actually mm-hmm. its point it's it's actually its point that you have these structures and and you can use d'angelo to like um efficientize the idea of oh, humans from different backgrounds being together um in in a corporation and and people are promoting this and you think hearts in the right place Head is literally in hell. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Robin D'Angelo's heart's in the right place. I think that no. woman is a psychopath. <laughs> well, she but... <laughs> is. She's also like she's deranged and, and deeply racist herself. Like, um, mm-hmm. but the people who are like, okay, racism exists. Let's get some D'Angeloism. Like, that's the bit that's um, you need something like the conspiracy as a bracket so that you don't fall for that because mm-hmm. that is the conspiracy that is capital protecting itself is, is how I described it to James, but it's the same thing, right? Like we're dealing with the, um, the control grid weaponizing whatever it needs to, to um, continue the project of building out the control grid. <laughs> like that's mm-hmm. how it works. Mm-hmm. And, and right. Grant is all over that with a description that will melt your face the first time you read it, but also a very, very specific because it's non-specific map, to freedom and how you correctly fight it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in book, I, so I have the, the seven volumes, the trade paperbacks. So it's mm-hmm. in uh, Kissing Mr. Quimper. Uh, but basically when, whenever Fanny, uh, you know, pulls the rug out from, from Quimper, a lot of this book has to do with the Invisibles essentially setting mind traps for the Archons to get in. I didn't realize how many mind traps there were in this thing, right? Yeah. Where you, you think that the Archons 
have completely taken over uh, one of the Invisibles' minds, and they kind of have, but it was like that was their bait. Like they were luring them into their mind to sort of close the walls around them. But, uh, but Fanny basically tells, I actually took a screenshot of this, but tells Quimper, you know, the darkness in people doesn't frighten me. When you shut your eyes, afraid to see yourself as you truly are, that is when you see only darkness. And I thought that was, yeah, there you go. That's perfect. That reminds me of growing up in Oklahoma and having a friend group that was very diverse and, you know, and we loved each other, but we were just kind of open and free. And we talked about whatever we wanted to talk about. And we said whatever we wanted to say and kind of nothing could tear us apart. We're still friends, you know, most of us to this day. And I think that one of the most arconic and insidious things of D'Angeloism is this idea that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're friends with people of color or, you know, uh, if straight people are friends with gay people, you're, you're still prejudiced in your heart, right? That kind of weird original sin, that thing that needs to be managed. That's the, that's the problem. If right you there. are being atomized, you are in the presence of the archon. It's as mm. simple as that. And, and the D'Angeloist process is an atomizing one. Um, and, and this is kind of why, as I'm sure you're aware, because we've been through this together, David. Yeah. Um, yes. That's why this op was so obvious from the beginning, because if you are being atomized, you are in the presence of the Archon, and, and, and we have been. And that feeling that you will never, that, um, that constant um, darkness that D'Angeloism puts in um, like white souls, this is such a, a fucking race theory, it's just such a, mess but you know what i mean again um entropy in the uk the description of like it when when dane is first fighting the king of all tears he's saying it's not even the fact that they look like these hideous alien demons or anything that's the scariest or cleverest while it's um they pull to the surface every shitty thing you have ever done and make you feel awful and despair. Mm. The, the exact quote is they remind you why you deserve it and um and that by the way is literally how demons show up when when you don't have them on a leash like you know they're getting closer when that feeling particularly these kind of demons when that feeling happens that um they remind you of everything all you can think about is the worst things you've ever done and all you can feel is terrible and despair and they mm. remind you why you deserve it again twitter Right? Yeah, right. That's how I know. That's how I know that this entity is as close to the imaginal surface as, as it actually is. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of entropy in the UK, this might be shifting gears a little bit. So this is bringing it closer to, to writing. There is a story that Morrison to- uh, told often um, about writing that particular book. So the character of King Mob, who's this sort of awesome uh, uh, badass, he's kind of the main character of the book, was modeled on Grant Morrison. It looks like Grant Morrison. He essentially said that he wanted to write himself into the book and make him like have sex with all the hottest chicks and basically be the coolest guy who ever lived as a kind of hyper-sigilizing uh, uh, way to make that him in real life, which he is pretty cool, so probably worked. Um, but in Entropy in the UK, King Mob is uh, kidnapped after, you know, after saving Fanny from, I can't remember the Archon's name, that weird faceless guy. Anyway, um, so he's basically, he's, he's locked up, he's in an interrogation room, and they give him key 17, which messes with his frontal lobe, does, so that he can't tell the difference between 
words and the actual thing that's happening. Now, when that happens, what Sir Miles does is shows him a mirror with a sticker on it that says diseased face. Yeah. So he feels like his face is rotting off. And now in real life, uh, after he wrote that and it went out into the world, Morrison developed a kind of bacterial infection on his face for which he was hospitalized. And so after that, he said, for the rest of the invisibles, you'll notice nothing really bad happens to King Mob after that. <laughs> he, yeah. kind of, he kind of floats through because he was like, he was essentially too freaked out by it. He's like, I put too much of myself into this book. And I was wondering what you think is going on there. What, what, would, what would make it from a chaos magic perspective, what would make it so that writing yourself as a character in a book, because Stephen King has done this too. And yeah, to, I, I don't, I don't think to any deleterious effects, but what do you think was going on there? So what you need is a way for that to work. And uh, what you need is an explanation or an understanding for how that works. That is the same as how something like new thought or sigils work because it is right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is why the last couple of years I've been so interested in, in indigenous understandings of metaphor. So um, and Tyson Yonkaporter's example of, of being at a school that had a whole bunch of um, indigenous kids who are acting out and what have you. And he gets there and there's this mural on the wall of fish and like representing the kids. And, you know, that's school and fish and so on. But they're trapped in a net. Like it's sort of they're, they're netted by by the beach in this mural. And it's like, what the fuck? This mm. is a terrible metaphor for kids being together. You, you put them in a net, a prison that ends in their death, Right. And for Indigenous kids, that's a really bad thing to do because um, our version of, not that we don't have police violence as well, but our version of that is Indigenous deaths in custody and it's a real problem, right? So that is what um, Morrison has a metaphor of him that he's exploring magically and he does bad things to it. And so bad things happen. (laughs) Like it it is honestly as as kind of like simple as that and it kind of comes back to what we were saying before that your brain can't tell the difference between someone berating you and you thinking bad thoughts about yourself like it's Uh, it's the same thing right um and it this is why use of metaphor is is so critically important um from a magical perspective well having a magical understanding of metaphor is so critically important is, is a better way of describing it but you i mean you'll you'll write the books and and publish the books does that stuff not happen to you I got really scared about it. One of my novels is uh, pretty much the story of my kind of down and out uh, druggy times in rural Oklahoma. So I did get kind of weird about that. And I was very careful because I knew the Morrison story at this point. Um, I think that I've been pretty safe so far because I do try to... Uh, have you ever listened to Weird Studies? The no, the pod- yeah. It's a, it's a good podcast. This is two dudes uh, who talk about all sorts of different books and stuff. Um, uh, and they, they were basically talking about whenever they engage with an idea or uh, read something spooky or whatever, whenever they, they stop doing that, they, they say, what a bunch of bullshit, which is kind of their way of banishing that. And I do try to keep uh, the writing and the life separate. But basically at this point, I try not to write myself into anything. I feel like that's just like, the scariest thing that you can possibly do. I know a ton of writers who, uh, a, a buddy of mine, uh, really successful guy, but you know, he had a kid and he was terrified of losing the kid. So he wrote 
a book about a father whose uh, son gets, um, it, it's these people on, on the Amazon and, and the son gets like abducted by a shark or something like that and eaten. And it's the father chasing the shark down the river. Um, and I thought to myself like, that is, that's maybe not the best way to do that. Um, mm. But <laughs> made him feel better. His kid's fine. So, you know, who knows? You know, maybe, yeah. do, it's not guaranteed, but um, right. yeah, it, I think, I think if people do magic and write, uh, they're aware that these are, if not the same thing, somehow kind of the same thing. Uh, and, and so you, you take it with a different kind of seriousness, which is also why I'm, I'm so dismayed at people like Neil Gaiman, who should know better and their shitty theories of mine. But these are the people who are stuck having to kind of sell books to people like us, but also Neckbeards and Daniel Dennett types. And, and well, like, Alan Moore, too. I was so disappointed when I heard Alan Moore say, you know, well, the thing is about magic is that it's just, you know, you're just kind of tricking yourself and working with these ideas. And it really, it hurt my heart. I was like, man, I thought you were cool. But I've always, <laughs> I've, I've always been team Morrison anyway. But, you know, to kind of talk about the metaphor thing, also um, at the very end, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't finished it, but it really doesn't matter because it's not the point of the book. But when, no. when King Mob faces off against the King of All Tears, he has sort of taken a vow to no longer kill people because throughout the book, he's a murder machine. He's just, he's putting bullets into, you know, all these different soldiers and, you know, whatever. But when he faces off against the King of All Tears, he points his gun at him and a little clown flag that says pop comes out and it destroys the Archon, basically. So in the end of the book, the metaphor is what actually kills yep. the Archon, which I thought was pretty cool. It's, that's, um, I. Grant probably would, if he'd read Tyson Young, Tyson Young Caputo's stuff, have described it that way. But that's his famous thing that, like, both Superman and the bomb began as ideas. So um, we should have better ideas, and that's true. I think there's, I think there's a more haunted way to say it, which is how we're discussing it. But that's his potency, and he at least anchors it into. Um, the correct kind of change in the timeline in a way that, as you say, Alan kind of, and I love his stuff. Everyone does. Um, it's not, it's not like coming from him in any way, but yes, the, he's kind of hedging his bets both ways, sort of like Neil Gaiman so that he can say things that appeal to the more weird amongst his readers. Like the one place the gods uh, can be said to inarguably, inarguably exist is in the human imagination, blah, blah, blah. And that's true, but I mean that differently. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is it, keep going, please. Yeah, yeah. What, what, yeah. What, like, how, how do you mean that differently? Oh, because we're embedded in the imagination. The imagination isn't embedded in us, right? So that's mm -hmm. how you get, like, because he's saying that that's where they inarguably exist in there, whatever, what the rest of that quote is like, real and terrible majesty. I can't remember. And I think that too, but I think we're also in the imagination. I don't think it's in us. So it's a theory of mind challenge. Uh, and and I, I agree 100% with his statement. We just have a different theory of mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, basically making the shift to understanding imagination as sort of the original substance. I think I heard this from you, but isn't it thought now that language developed as, as metaphor first? The thought process being that, you know, Ugg saw fire and said Ugg, and then that meant fire but it, it didn't actually work that way. Like the first words were metaphors. 
There's no evidence for it, but that was that's one of the inklings, Owen Barfield's suggestion that he realized that metaphor describes reality better than non-metaphoric descriptions. And he, he learned that at um, Oxford when he was um, translating, I think it was the Cicero's death. And, and in Latin, when he was translating it, the correct way to translate it into English was Cicero passed out of life. And he realized that, I think it was Cicero, but he realized that that is, a, that is somehow a more accurate way than saying Cicero died. Like he just, and he's like, fuck. So, but so the metaphor, which we've been in our kind of linguistic studies, we're told that it's lesser, it's pseudo, it's, it's stuck inside the head. It's not a real thing. It's a thing that makes you think of another real thing. And he's like, I don't know, no, 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 that's not right. <laughs> metaphor <laughs> comes first. And actually, if you look at ancient languages, and again, Aboriginal languages, Amazonian languages, um, Aboriginal ones are probably a lot more ancient than Amazonian ones. Um, but it's that kind of famous um, 300 words for snow um, or um, 200 words for rain for Polynesians and so on. Like you're dealing with, as far as it looks like, um, we began more nuanced and complete and, and declined. Uh, and interestingly, that would map to the sort of coming closer of a technocratic entity, right? So that we- I was about to say yeah, that, yep. Yeah, we, uh, so you can kind of track that over time, which, um, Grant again plays with because um, in one of the ones towards the end, um, Dane is effectively taken on a tour of the where the outer church meets the human imagination by essentially Jesus. Like he doesn't, he doesn't say mm-hmm. it's Jesus, but he's kind of talking about how these entities erased my true or an accurate representation of my life in, in 325 AD. So there was a hit on Jesus is, is kind of what they're saying there. Um, but yeah, the, like we, that bit I think is really, really useful as a, as a metaphor to understand um, how you engage combatively with entities like this. So the outer church is the sort of description of the dimension these things come from when it's close to our dimension. And there's this bit where it overlaps with the human imagination. So they're sort of building it in there and that's absolutely the right way to think about how you um how you begin the process of getting away from the clutches of of entities like that they the outer church is being built in the human imagination and more specifically they're trying to build the future they want in it that is that is like the great reset to a t <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah no and it reminds me of a recent blog post that you did called how you play is what you win which by the way, I think should be tattooed on everybody's arm because I, I think that's just one of the most perfect phrases I've ever seen. Um, can you explain that concept a little bit? Uh, what you mean by how you play is what you mean? Because I think it ties into what we're talking about here. Absolutely. So of course it's brilliant. It's from Ursula Le Guin, right? And, and it's mm-hmm. from, so she was slash is uh, effectively a pacifist anarchist and an and, and intellectual anarchist because anarchism is, is identical to invisibilism if you get it right and not the sort of ANCOM LARPing and, and promotion of state power that is being used by power uh, at the moment, which people associate with it. And, and you know, anarchism is, has had 150 years of hits being made on it because it's it's the ultimate terror for hierarchical power. Um, and it's also the only one we haven't tried. So uh, <laughs> what a shock. Uh, anyway, right. one of the um, 
one of the positionings, and this is a sort of um, sterner Marx argument in, in the 19th centuries, is you will end up in the wrong place if you seize state violence to abolish state violence because you don't actually abolish it. You just want to run it. Um, and that is different. If, if your goal, and it is an initial leftist goal, to not have state violence. <laughs> That's like it. Um, so how you play is what you win is, is a um, phrase from one of the short stories or novellas in The Found and the Lost. And it is literally about effectively um, uprisings to overthrow effective. It's like a metaphor for um, plantation slavery. And so you have the option of letting this system, if you engage with the system violently, you become the plantation owners. Um, and if you don't, if you let it collapse under the, um, by withdrawing from it, um, by effectively withdrawing or, or not engaging with it, how you play is what you win. Uh, you win nonviolence by being nonviolent. Um, and that's kind of cosmically true, but it's, it's the trap. Like everyone, this is that myth of significance. And the, the great tragedy of that is people sort of leave it as like, it is uh, one, they think myth is the same thing as falsehood, but like the myth of significance is when people, and, and correctly so turn around and say, you literally don't need to vote. Like it's this, electionism is a preposterous and primitive idea. Um, that's true, but it's, it's more like misplaced significance. And that's what how you play is what you win shows. Because yes, if you are participating in this idiotic scam, then in the case of the US isn't even going to matter because um, Trump's going to win in a landslide on the day, but it's going to be months of pretending um, all these different fraudulent things have happened. And it'll probably, end up, not that I care either way, but we just know what's going to happen. They're already mm -hmm. teeing up the lies about not, about, um, you know, what if he doesn't, um, agree to leave and say, well, that's what's going to happen there is you idiots are going to declare that you won, even though he did. So he's going to say, well, I'm not going to leave because they won. And you're going to expect the military to remove like a mess. Right. So enjoy voting in this election, America. God save it. Like, <laughs> it's going to do fuck all. Do something better that day. Go and have sex. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, no, that, voting is a hard pass for me. I didn't vote last time either. I good. voted for Obama both times because I was, you know, I had hope. You know, well, and it was then, on the uh, poster. <laughs> and it was on it was on the poster, and um, you know, I just thought to myself, you know what, this is a, this is historic, this is great, and uh, and yeah, that pretty much just stomped the last little bit of light out of my eyes. Those those yeah. two terms, I was like, never fucking again. Yeah, and and as long as you are, as long as you find your correct significance, so like, well, what can I do to make the world better? Then, that's you know politics in the cosmic sense. Um, and, and this is sort of what James and I spoke about, like the exit thing, like there's a, that it is a iconic mess of half possessed people on, and just, I don't know, competing with each other for, because they think they are the ones who should impose cruelty on the planet. Like it's, it's a demon's game, right? So mm -hmm. find, find the correct significance. Uh, and that's the sort of how you play is what you win. Uh, that's the sort of utopianist, pacifist, anarchist thing. Like, no, the, the the very idea that you have some sort of moral requirement to vote for fucking Kamala Harris and, and Joe Biden um, because Trump is bad 
is just it's a non-argument right it's like no I, I, i'm not going to vote for a fucking a bunch of racist cops like we've already got them um, yeah. go and make the world better in other words it's absolutely a non-argument and and that's the kind of thinking that becomes clear in your own heart if you do something like sincerely engage with the invisible so it's like we're trying to sell it like and that's yeah. why <laughs> hey guys you can you can download it too it's online i mean you know grant morrison has plenty of money but um you know definitely read it for sure yeah because it reminds me of this other uh this idea of if you want to win don't play basically mm -hmm. um and that sounds at first glance like a passive thing to say but it's actually not it's very active because mm -hmm. you have you have to actively not play because the arconic vacuum sucking vortex you're basically you're like the alien or like the newborn at the end of alien resurrection the best one uh, where all of its guts are getting sucked out into space. Like that's pretty much it. If you I let just back a, to Twitter, <laughs> if, if you, <laughs> did I say, I didn't say Twitter. No, uh, I, I describing <laughs> Twitter again. <laughs> if you let the slightest hole open in that spaceship, it'll suck you out into space and you'll be right back where it is. So you have to kind of actively, actively fight against that. Yeah. And, and yeah, if you, if you see yourself waking up at 9am uh, and you're about to say something catty to Roxanne Gay on Twitter, you need to go for a run. That's yeah. it. Plant some flowers and or, or something. Like it needs to be... Um, yeah, and again, when the repeated use of the sort of idea that humans are bacteria designed to make it so that these entities can live in our reality, it is that it's not just one side is bad and one side is good. It is the presence of that dialectic that rearranges reality and makes it easier for um, the archons to make egress. And, and so it's not, it's not where the, it, it's not where the battle is. You're actually, even if you're on either side, if you want to be blue team or red team in America, you're on the same side as far as I'm concerned. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Literally 100%. on the same side. And, and well, that's just as about America. It's just, you guys have, a fraud coming up um it'll be our turn uh, assuming they don't suspend them which they probably will uh, in the next couple of years i was gonna say nothing makes my blood run colder than what has been going on in new zealand and australia recently yeah the absolute psychopathy of these people what's the name of the prime minister of new zealand um what's, what's oh jacinda Ardern. yeah so there's a video of her uh, they're, they're giving this, like, this is, this is the archons for anybody who wants to have a perfect real world example of this. But essentially anybody who tests positive for what we're calling COVID-19, which. Oh. With, with a test that will show up as you have it, if you either have it or don't have it, because it's uh, an, an, an RNA fragment that uh -huh. I not even tell you about. So like the test will either tell you you have it or you don't have it. And in both cases, it's a case. <laughs> it's yeah, it's a, it's a case. Yeah. So if you, if, if you have a case, you have to now go to a facility. I think I'm getting this right. Uh, a kind of quarantine facility. So a camp, a prison, um, which I'm sure is very nice. I'm sure they feed you three square meals a day currently. Um, and the interviewer asks her upon learning that people have to test negative before they can leave, which is, might be impossible. Yeah. Um, they ask, so if they don't want to take the test, what do they do? And she's all smiles. And she says, well, 
you know, if they don't want to take the test, well, then unfortunately they're not going to be allowed to leave. So that might be their incentive to go ahead and take their test or get their jab. And I watched that and I was like, that is the most fucking evil thing I've ever seen in my life. And people look at that and say, oh, good, man, New Zealand is doing the right thing. They really have it taken care of. Are you, are you people fucking insane? Yeah, well, we're in at the sort of Davos predatory class planning level. We are, we've always been the test market for this kind of stuff um, to see how much people will take. And there's something, again, coming back to the idea that ideas are, themselves are real. It's, um, we were, well, we stole this country and made it a police state. So the legal entity that is Australia has always been a police state. This is a prison colony. So that's in the DNA of, or the cosmic DNA of people who climb the hierarchy here, that this is a, they, they become policemen. And that's Victoria for you, right? And you can, you, they look possessed. She looked possessed when she said that. But if you look at the video of the kind of police violence that's coming out, um, that's the cruelty of state violence in the eyes of those policemen that are being um, videoed doing that stuff. And, and that is one of the, that entity has always been close to the surface here. And what people don't get about New Zealand was that it actually wasn't a colony initially in the same way, this is imperial nonsense, um, that Australia was. And it was kind of managed by Australian, which were British soldiers, but like managed by by Australian police. Like there was a, there were whaling towns that um, Charles Darwin visited and whatever in the north of New Zealand. But when it became effectively a protectorate, it was essentially a bunch of British soldiers sailed from Australia to kind of sort the place out. So it's, it's kind of been colonized itself by a police state. And that is important. Like this is again, coming back to like metaphors and, and story and, 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 and dreaming um, in the Aboriginal sense are, are real things. So if, if your government has a dreaming of a police state, this is what it looks like. When it gets oh, that's brilliant. Covered. I love that. That's the first time I've heard it put that way, but yeah, they have police dreaming. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. And it's like to think about the, the recent video I sent you in the DM, but out of Spain, a woman was uh, going to be arrested for not wearing a mask in public, which we went over earlier, why that's an absurd thing to arrest anybody for. But uh, these five cops were trying to take her into custody and a mob of people essentially yanked her out of their hands and did not use violence. They didn't hurt any of the police officers. They simply stopped them from doing that. So that might be what we're talking about when we talk about actively not playing, like sometimes you'll, you're going to have to do stuff like that, but it's in the interest of stopping that authoritative police violence. I hope to see hopefully, hopefully more nonviolent resistance in, in the U S I'm in a, I'm in Oklahoma. So I'm in a deeply red state that doesn't believe in masks anyway. So hopefully that kind of thing doesn't really get here. But uh, when it does, I, you know, I don't want to see anybody shot, but I'm just hoping for um, people like the guy who I see at the gas station, uh, and it's a different guy every time, but he's the same guy, who's just in there, uh, you know, without a mask, just refuses to be in there with, with a mask on, and he buys his stuff and he goes about his business, you know, just these little acts of rebellion as much as you can get away with, I think are going to be very important, and also kind of active non-participation is in the creation of new narratives. Absolutely. So, but right. People need to situate those kind of, because again, um, centering desire and joy is winning by not playing. 
and and so there are things that when you when you have to kind of interface with the control grid there are ways that that looks like and it is the sort of um, non-violent removal of someone away from police violence um the, the video you sent from spain is a really good example but so i think i mean grant literally brings the Marquis de Sade from the past back into the present in the first issue. And he's there in the last one. And the last one's called Invisible Kingdom, which is the, again, the idea that the empire never ended. The Invisible Kingdom is this. It's, it's that sort of um, round table group, technocratic um, fire in the minds of men, Carol Quigley, um, Davos class thing. That's the perpetuate. That's the invisible kingdom, right? So we think, oh, it's the invisibles. It's a good guy. It is that, but that whole final um, volume is is about essentially installing a um, a demon on on the um, British throne, right? So when he says invisible kingdom, he's referring to this perpetual structure we are talking about that you can't defeat by engaging. You defeat by like desire and joy and organ and in that issue that's like Marquis de Sade's taking my favorite ever character the person the person I most want to be in the world like Lady Edith um uh-huh. <laughs> through like he's got like pools of organ energy and all this kind of stuff and I, what did I said the Tim Dillon thing earlier right Tim Dillon mm-hmm. looks like the Marquis de Sade and I think maybe he does, he does yeah he looks like Grant Morrison's Marquis de Sade which is proof that the Invisibles is a documentary because he's exactly that kind of energy Right. Yeah. Oh, I love listening to his podcast because you want to talk about somebody who really doesn't have a side at all and who just sort of says what's on his mind. A little plug for the Tim Dillon show. Not that he needs it, no. uh, but it's, <laughs> it's very much his time because this time needs a Marquis de Sade to remind you of like ribaldry and, and all the rest of it. And, and it's this masterpiece. And it's almost like he's not familiar with, the modern world, like, because, I mean, his ads are the best thing, right? But like, it's almost like he's not familiar with the real world in the same way the Marquis de Sade, when he shows up at the beginning, he's like, I'm gonna like it here, I think. But he's right. not familiar with it. And it just seemed like The Invisibles continues its spell of being kind of real because Tim Dillon looks like the Marquis de Sade. And I think that is the kind of show that the Marquis de Sade would have <laughs> if <laughs> podcast exists when he was writing it. Well, think about, yeah, I mean, think he, you know, he loves food and, you know, and, and TikTokers, you know, he's very sort of open about his fascination with Logan Paul and people like that. And he just seems to be the, a guy who really wants to get out and make people laugh, which really, I mean, comedians, we went through this whole sort of dark period where comedians thought that they were, you know, the truth tellers of, of the world. It kind of started with Bill Hicks and then John Stewart put the put the big old nail in that coffin. You know, when when comedy became strictly dunking, that's when you enter into the arconic back and forth, yeah, right? Strictly dunking on corporate Democrat enemies and being right. paid by the CIA to do it, which is again like Ellen and him and the rest of it. Um, right. Yeah, it, it, because it was, and this is why you can't win them by fighting it, uh, because it literally did potentially become a threat to the system um, because there were some exciting and vibrant, same thing like Alexi Sale and whatever in Britain, vibrant middle-class, uh, a vibrant working-class commentary that was hilarious. Richard Pryor, all this kind of thing. Very, very dangerous to the system because it's not just that these entities, and this is one of the ways you do in fact fight back. Uh, this is a chaos anarchist thing. These entities 
demand to be taken very seriously. Mm, yes. Um, and yes, the exactly. thing they hate them because they like cruelty and they can't do life. Um, anytime you can look at you, when you point out their absurdities, their funny little hats and their stupid capes and talking about royalty and whatever, but any of them standing up there, taking it seriously, flags and whatever, anything you can do to highlight how ridiculous that is. Cause that's the spell. That's like, the, the spell of legitimate power and, and a working class comedian is the counter spell. Right. And so they had to go <laughs> and we get, yeah. and, 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 um, and SNL and all those kind of terrible late night shows into that. Yeah. And that also reminds me of my experience in the world of writing and publishing, because similarly, when you get up the chain, when you go to the correct, you know, dinner parties and meet with the right agents and things like that, that same sort of seriousness kind of seeps in. And then you're given a choice whether you want to play the game that way. And it always felt very wrong to me. It always felt like, well, what we're, the reason why I'm doing this in the first place is because I like to have fun. I like to make up weird stories and then I like for people to read them. Uh, and I like to be mostly left alone. But when you get to kind of like the top and, you know, basically every book that is the, you know, the it book of the season, there are about six people who make that decision. Uh, basically the, the, the big five uh, companies each have a sort of like their different representatives who go to the different, uh, to the, to the, I heard the number six. I don't know if this is exactly right, but it's, it's kind of just like, I know this sounds silly, but I think you'll believe me like a cabal of, of booksellers, right? So uh, with Amazon and even Barnes and Noble and things like that. And they all sort of pick out which one is going to be their sellers. And often it's, you know, a, the Snooki's biography or something like that, but they do it with fiction too. They essentially yes, pick out which one because I'm sure you know this, uh, you know, the Iowa writers workshop was a CIA op from the very beginning. So basically the idea was to get everybody to sort of write in this very particular MFA style way that I can smell from a mile away yes, and I'll put down the book every fucking time. But, um, so it even creeps into the arts, right? When you get high enough up, it becomes this extremely serious business, which is hurting right now because a lot of folks don't read novels. Um, and so they're, they're basically, they've doubled down on, uh, there was a, there's a great editor at FSG who's putting out these fantastic, difficult books like uh, Jeff Jackson's Destroy All Monsters uh, and a bunch of other ones. And he was recently fired because they, they didn't sell well. And, and that's, that's against everything that I got into this to do. Yeah. Um, the, the art has been weaponized. This is something that I spoke to Dr. Farrell about and it's in his mind control book uh, from as a cold war theater of conflict to demonstrate the preeminence of this sort of um, capitalist system. So they've been, um, Paris Review was CIA funded, probably still is. Um, and again, it's that same like picking the right kind of writers to uh, to frame reality in, in the correct way. And this is the material in, in Chaos Protocol shows like it, it had come out just as I was writing the book, the interlocking of um, board membership of the world's biggest companies is like a 66% give or take um, overlap. What that means in practice is that you can run the world like you can set targets on an industry basis for the planet with about three or four zoom calls. Mm -hmm. 
Like it is, mm. it is simple as that. Like within a week, you can work out what is coming out um, in, in fiction, in nonfiction, in cinema, uh, in whatever, in multiple languages around the world and, and when, right? And it's literally um, there at a board overship la- over a board membership level is where you actually see um, three to five year strategies being set. And this is the Davos class. This is what I've been talking about. They, they have the, um, the derangement of, of publishing because they think they're right. They just, they tell you what they're about to do. And 2019 was all about um, promoting digital currencies and, and stable coins. So a central bank digital um, crypto and, and going direct. Like they basically told you exactly what they're going to, and here we are in a world where those things are happening, where you will end up with effectively a central bank crypto wallet very shortly. <laughs> and for people who might say, well, what's the problem with that? The issue with UBI as it's currently being, you know, thought of is that when you get that money, when you get that digital currency, that's not money that spends just anywhere. That's money that spends in very particular places. Catherine so again, Fitz it's call, yeah. Catherine Fritz calls it. Uh, they're replacing currency with credit at the company store. Mm. So they're replacing money with gift certificates that you can only use uh, for approved companies, right? Um, and this is also why five G needs to happen because you you actually one of the problems that they need to solve in the next few years for things like a crypto is you need the ubiquity of being able to transact for things. So we're all going to be microwaved <laughs> so they can um, currency with it. So it's a big, yeah. these things for people who are freaking out um, and you kind of get this in the invisibles. Uh, and it's, it's really, really interesting, right? Like one of the things I loved and it's, you can tell that Grant's experiences on mushrooms in Nepal and whatever have had been similar to mine in the sense of it really fucks with time. And I'm about to ask you about your tat and novels. Um, but there's a moment where when Dane defeats the King of All Tears in, in the first one, um, in Say You Want a Revolution, I think it's in that one. Well, it's in the first volume anyway. Um, what the Archon does isn't die. It's, it kind of expands or unfolds its geometry back into sort of five dimensions and finds a point in the timeline where they're weak again and vanishes and goes there. And that's what we're sort of like when the Davos class publishes what it wants to do, it doesn't mean it's foregone. It just means this is what they want to do. Right. <laughs> and, and we have the opportunity to arrange our lives for the, um, from a risk management perspective of the parts that we're confident will happen and ones that won't and, and so on. So that's the sort of battle rather than, Oh, it's all, um, it's all under control. It's not quite like that. Like the, the, the invisibles is, is a characterization of how you genuinely, become this sort of hyperdimensional uh, anarchist chaos magician, right? Like that's the actual, that's, it's the manual (laughs) basically. But one of the other things we can do, and this is where you talk about your tat and something else you said, which seemed like a stone thought that I'm like, no, I'll probably follow up on that later. (laughs) Novels um, were like good for time travel. So probably do, um, do a little bit about how you got into um, books and so on in, in various different forms and then tell us those two bits. And if you want to start with the tap or if you want to hold on to that, because I presume it has something to do with your idea of time and novels. Oh yeah. No, that, that's those are really good questions. I got into books uh, because I was posting short stories on my Zanga. Remember those? 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I was posting short stories on my Zanga and, uh, and then I found out about this message board. You remember those? Uh, where these people called the Bizarros were uh, exchanging stories back and forth. And so the Bizarro fiction movement started in Portland, Oregon, uh, with a press called Eraserhead. Uh, and they're still, they're still going to this day. But they had figured out, they had gotten in on uh, Lightning Source really early, which is a print-on-demand service where you can, for a very low cost, um, not have to print a run of a book. Uh, so it, it kind of frees you from the risk of, you know, a book potentially tanking. So they, uh, with this author, uh, Carlton Mellick III, basically sort of pioneered this hyper strange kind of John Waters meets David Lynch style of, of writing. They had uh, books called like, you know, uh, The Haunted Vagina and uh, what was another really good one? Um, the Menstruating Mall, stuff like that, right? So really strange books. So I, I fell in with that crew which is why I eventually moved uh, to Portland. And I had always written stories ever since I was a little kid. I, you know, I, my earliest one that my mother has saved is a, is a very clear uh, ripoff of Jurassic Park, except it's in a zoo. Twinsies. And <laughs> I, I, I wrote a sequel to Jurassic Park before Lost World came out when I was in primary school. Oh, um, perfect. And it was, so I, I would have been 10 maybe. And it was, 44 pages and I'm like this is a fucking novel 44 typed pages yeah. <laughs> that is good no that's great yeah when I was a I wrote this uh, I was really into Steven Seagal movies as well so my school had a, a a writing competition that I won with a book called C4 Blowout which was about a suicide bomber who break I, I think I was watching um, a lot of uh, Goldeneye at the time and playing a lot of Goldeneye uh, which I maintain is still the best Bond movie. Um, but uh, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so basically, in in the book, uh, it, you'll have to forgive me because I was, you know, I think eleven years old. But it is a it is an Islamic terrorist who commits a suicide bombing in a facility, and everybody dies, and that's the end. And so, like, all my classmates voted for that one because I got on pretty well with everybody and they were just like yeah david's the the writer guy but the trick was is that they had to read the story at like a parent dinner and uh, they actually did not read mine they just said no no it's it's good but we're gonna not read that and so i got high off of that and ever since then i was like i'm gonna write fucked up shit and and that's that's how i ended up doing that so basically uh yeah you know published a few novels on a press that doesn't exist anymore called swallow down um, the, the first one's about a, uh, prisoners in a, in a Russian gulag right after Stalin dies. And it's very, very surreal, but the, the conceit of it is that they have to escape. Um, but they have to bring someone with them to be what's called a calf, uh, somebody who they eat when they run out of food. So it's basically about camp life. So I read, uh, Ann Applebaum's gulag and, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, Gulag Archipelago and like a little vulture I just took all the nasty bits out and decided to basically turn that into a book but it's very very surreal there's a alien parasite who lives in the protagonist's neck that comes out of his throat while he's asleep and writes novels so there might be something going on there I'm not sure uh, 
and then towards the end of the novel, he kind of goes into a hallucinatory fugue state where he ends up in a sort of imaginal world where he's part of this marketplace where he sells uh, clothes for placenta, which is uh, something that uh, a lot of, um, oh, what's the name of the tribe in Siberia that does that? But they'll make uh, little doll clothes for the placenta and keep it for a long time after a child is born. <clears throat> so I got into, and then I started my own publishing company and put out a lot of weird, strange books that have done really well by guys like Stephen Graham Jones and Gabino Iglesias. And I'm kind of rambling here. So that was no, the good. question, right? Okay. No, yeah, yeah. Like, how'd you get into books? This is good. You did your okay. book and the, um, the press. So carry on. Because then we were going to get to why novels and, and the tat and, and the reveal there of your um, crazy stoned idea that probably has some pretty exciting logic behind it. Yeah, so, okay, right. Um, so novels have uh, sort of always appealed to me because of, um, of their ability to play with time. I've often said that um, film can do this because film can go back and forward in time. Uh, most films don't take place in real time. Uh, even if it's just over the course of a few days, we're sort of jumping around. But outside of slow motion, what films cannot do is dilate time, which I became really, really fascinated with because I got really in, when I was 18, I read Infinite Jest, it took me like two months. Uh, and I fell in love with Wallace's, you know, labyrinthine sentences. And the fact that we could still be in a room with a character and it be 40 pages later and we've just gone on a trip together, but we're still in that same room. So the dilation of time, the stretching of time, and also the contracting of time was really interesting to me too, because a film can't contract a book the way something like uh, Mary Robison or uh, Amy Hempel or James Elroy can do, where they can fit everything down into these telegraphic sentences that just give you the straight information that builds this huge picture, right? So. I was really interested in the presentation of time through books. Now my tattoo is from the Invisibles. It's on my right forearm. It is of the origami uh, time machine that a, a scientist named Takashi in the book uses to, to build a time machine years and years later. And so what I thought was kind of cool about like, so I see this tattoo as kind of like both a novel and a sort of sigil generator um, or like more like the powerhouse for these things for me, because in the book, in the invisibles, the, the creation of the time machine is a time loop. So the time machine goes back in time and it is, it's seen. And then the guy makes the origami in the shape of the time machine. And that origami shape eventually leads to the time machine itself being made. Right. So it's kind of this, it's what Eric Wargo would call a time loop. Right. Um, and so the way that I, I put that on my arm, because uh, whenever you make a sigil or whenever you sit down to write a novel, um, in a way, usually, well, if you finish it, right, it's already been written or already been completed in the future. The sigil tech that you put on the premium members uh, site, I think it's also in Chaos Protocols, is basically to write out your mission statement as though it already exists. Yeah. So the tattoo itself is just sort of like creating this energy, like this feedback between the thing that's already been created and my desire to create it. Yeah, I like it. The, um, the origami 
uh, time machine that is an origami response to seeing his great great grandson's time machine, like in the early 1900s, mm-hmm. is the descriptions of him folding it in the garden, like the great great grandfather of Takashi, uh, mm-hmm. where it's somehow the same thing as the frog jumping in the pond and also the building of the time machine is another one of those Morrisonisms that has the the exact mouthfeel of something like magic or mushroom trips in particular when they fuck with time because I've some of my best ones have been when I've gone to solve things using mushrooms um, I actually noticed myself in the past like the memory of why I was drawn to an empty balcony during a particular incident was because that's where I landed when I was doing mushrooms to come to the the moment where the sort of things went wrong in the first one. It's just that kind of galaxy brain fucking moment, right? And there's something about the origami shape, but also the description of it, of of the folding of it being like time folding and enfolded time. And he's very and this is real mushroom stuff. Like he's really interested in geometry in in a hyperdimensional sense. There's like f- sort of with Barbalith this sort of like a flatland thing of, of circles and spheres and a sphere in our dimension would look like a circle and all that kind of stuff. So, and that mm-hmm. you notice cause mushrooms have that weird, especially when they're coming up kind of like tesseract in quality. So um, I love that about the, uh, I love the characterization of the origami sort of model for the time machine. That's also the time machine. It's just perfect. Yeah. Yeah, because it has to, it has to it basically folds itself into the fourth or fifth dimension. And that's how time travel happens. If it does have, like, again, because it's Morrison, it, it does happen, but it also doesn't, you know. Um, we're kind of left wondering, like, did it just disappear? Did, but of course it did happen because, anyway, <laughs> like, then Mason Lang meets, you know, Robin in 2012 or whatever. It's all this, you know, sort of like, connecting stuff. I have a question that might seem a little strange, but I was, uh, so I have always had OCD in my life. And when you mentioned being like kind of pulled out onto a balcony, so that can happen to me, but in a way that's a little bit sort of frustrating. That's more like an itch in the brain. I, I've often chalked that up to, to mental illness, but is there something weird going on with time have I done something? <laughs> so one of the, my, the best one was sort of like, I can't go into too much detail. It's sort of relationship stuff. But I remember like in the early days of having met James, I was over at his place. We're still obviously living in Auckland. Um, and he, we, his bedroom, cause we were students, like was the mattress on the floor kind of situation, right? You know, we lived well. <laughs> classic, classic. Uh, and he had the front room of this old house in kind of like um, one of the real university kind of house in, in one of the inner suburbs of Auckland. And it had these double doors that opened onto, it wasn't even really a balcony. It was more like a flat. Like I think they were planning to build something there or not, but it was about the size of the double doors, almost like one of those shitty tiny apartment um, balconies that you can basically just stand on. Like you can't even put a chair or something on there. Um, but it was dangerous because it didn't have, um, uh, barriers or anything. So I was, jo- I kept being drawn to it as I was sort of lying in bed and the windows were open. I said, this is where your aliens land, isn't it? Uh. An alien landing platform for you. It was just usual dumb couple teasing stuff. Um, except when I went looking for a particular healing that I needed in my life, uh, 
And the mushrooms, like, what do you want me to share? It was interesting because that was when I started to get good with mushrooms and you sort of let it into your memories and it's kind of running multidimensionally through it. It's okay, cool. And it found it and it took me there. And I was the thing that landed on the balcony watching me and James having this discussion. And then the, he had these beads that I'd given him that fell on the ground. But like it was, I, in my early 20s, when I kept being drawn, my attention kept being drawn to the balcony and saying like, this is where your aliens land. I was being drawn to me going back to that moment to find the medicine that I needed for now, which is where, and it was in that room that the split had happened that needed healing. And mm -hmm. that was, I came out of that like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm, <laughs> right? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah. that's sort of what I mean. Like, I think, um, and, and this is what, time travel stories can do right they can make you realize which is what the invisibles is it's effectively a time travel story this is kind of the you are in a cosmic and even battles too dramatic but we'll use it you are in a cosmic exchange with on if you do it right on behalf of the forces of life against the forces of anti-life and and that happens across time and dimensions and so on. But that was like this mushroom moment. I, it was so weird. And as it was landing, because I, I mean, I think half the time, like McKenna, I think the mushroom is an alien. So like, it, I wasn't wrong when I said, oh, is this where your aliens land? But I didn't realize that I was landing with it. And I mm. noticed myself noticing myself just mind melting. Yeah, that's wild. That, I don't even know what to say about that. No, well, that's... <laughs> but I mean, it's one of those things. It's one of those things that's so interesting because it makes me wonder. But again, you know, you don't want to get too much into the sort of uh, chemical aspect of of what's happening with with a mushroom trip. But it's it's wild that mushroom has the ability to move outside of time, yeah. which means that it's that it's basically when you're eating it, and you what you see could be stuff that's in the future or like you said, what is it like letting it into your memory? That's very invisibles, right? Because again, what they do is they, they let, they let things in. There's a kind of radical letting poison in. There's a part in uh, kissing Mr. Quimper where uh, uh, Dane just says, you know what, fuck it. And he, he walks directly into that, that goopy hell substance that takes you into the hell realm. Right. There's this, there's this, radical engagement with the poisonous and the evil, right? Um, not being a part of it, but sort of like allowing it in, not putting up your defenses necessarily, but giving it just enough rope to hang itself with. Yeah. Um, it became apparent. I mean, I've done a bunch of it, obviously, but it became apparent to me, I think, when we were in the jungle that I have some entheogenic foo and and that's why i did that show a year or so ago whenever it was a solo show about how to take mushroom how and why to take mushrooms because when you engage with it in an animus context of it actually being um a person and not just a person like a um the real like something very big in a very small package um you can do things like this and it has rules ayahuasca has different rules and one of them was like i had to let it into my memories it's kind of it's it will play with you and, and give you healing um, through the play and the joy of it. But if you want to take it on a particular ride um, or if you want to watch it do its healing, that's the other thing I've seen it deep down in the unconscious. It's it was really interesting, like collapsed 
under the pressure. It was sort of like underwater. I've been, you know, I dive in um, sunken ships and all that kind of stuff. And it was like trying to lift up all these collapsed bits at the very bottom of the end, almost like where the, um, I had the impression of that Jungian idea that where you have your own unconscious and, and there is the unconscious and there's that overlap spot. Really fascinating stuff. I, I love that kind of thing. But that's a really good example of, again, because we're selling the invisibles, I guess. Of yes, I think we are. How, how being in the world is, if you, again, do it correctly, it's such a dangerous word correctly. Um, there is a way to be in the world that makes the universe better. And... And that's being that kind of being on the side of promoting life. Uh, and yeah. In like a radical way too, you know, yeah. everything from, um, you know, rock music to sex, to fashion, uh, to sort of like, just kind of not following the rules. There is kind of a, a sort of adolescent sort of punk attitude throughout the entire book where they're sort of constantly giving people middle fingers uh, just kind of being like, you know, too cool for school. But that sort of radical engagement with everything that life has to offer uh, and also being kind of connected to things that are life, like the dirt and the trees, you know, things like going outside with your shoes off and being in the sun, you know. If you have a bad hangover, just go for a walk in the sun. It's amazing. Like the sun can fix everything. But what I think the invisibles is kind of, doing is that it is it is a constant sort of battle might be again the wrong word but like you have to be on your toes you have to kind of look for power in everything you have to find out where power is trying to get in and it can do so very insidiously and you just sort of have to be against that it's what you and uh james were talking about with the archon that that concept to me i haven't read uh was it oceanville what how do you say that, that oh, title Oymusville, right. Yeah, I haven't read that yet, but the concept seems of, of sort of self radical self-sovereignty um, and then kind of expanding out from that, like radical self-sovereignty and also, you know, being there for your pals when they need it. Just just being a, a radically cool person is <laughs> kind, of, kind of a thing. Yeah, no, I get it. And And what I keep telling people is you actually know this, like, you you know how to do it. It's almost like the invisibles is just the legitimacy to do it. Like, you know, the right way to be in the world. Cause a human knows just the same way a frog knows how to frog. We know how to human. Um, this, this attack is to try and make us think we're something we're not. It's that like the archon thinks we're machines. Like it's trying to fix us as a machine, but we know how to human. And and that um, that I think is in there, even if it's because it's just the most '90s in a good way um, romp. A lot about it is very '90s, but it it will give you the pieces to come to that um, realization. I think. I guess it. So here's another question because it was a that was it was all written kind of in an end of history sense, um, sort of post wall coming down, etc. And that kind of slacker '90s era so there are some parts about like war being out of date and so on that um some parts of it haven't aged well like he did his best but like some of the some of the gender stuff with fanny is a bit out of date oh dude jim jim crow is very oh, problematic. that's amazing isn't it <laughs> like yeah. um i don't think i don't think it's possible to cancel this book but like there are some bits in there that uh <laughs> that do not um 
survive closer reading in, in 2020 and, and calling, yes, calling your black character who's also half Papageni, Jim Crow. And was a, that's, that was a little rough. Um, but again, it comes down to the fundamental problem with canceling. It's basic, canceling is essentially applying uh, managerial principles to art and yeah. saying that there is a list of things that are proper and improper. When you go into this workplace, you have to wear a suit and you are not allowed to swear. Um, also, you have to be a completely sort of uh, sexless drone bot. Um, that seeped in the way that um, the Archon who has uh, like the, the, the Archon juice coming out of her nipples. And, and when the guy drinks the Archon oh, milk. Oh, yeah, yeah, Miss Dwyer. Miss Dwyer. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, he, he can feel the little bugs going to work on his, uh, on his suit. It's like those little bugs, right? Once you start, you know, kind of sucking from the, the tit of the Archon, it bleeds out and you want to start putting it other places. Like you become a vector. Like this is the only case where virology actually works. Yeah. Um, you, you become a vector for this sort of arconic rules-based system that just really doesn't make sense when you try to apply it to a thing like art. Because The Invisibles is one of the purest um, works of art that I've ever encountered, right? And in that, I think that it's, uh, it's, it's so against everything that canceling stands for that I, I do think it's uncancelable. I think so. I don't think you can cancel life, um, which is also why they fail. But it reminded me because there's some bits that are very 90s, but there are some bits that are like alarmingly prophetic, even by his standards. And it reminded me when you were using the Mr. Wire example that um, Colonel Friday, who's the other kind of Archon villain from the beginning, I'm going to read from page 98 of Bloody Hell in America, um, because just pick which year dear listener, this sounds like. Hear this, when our master's work is done, every living thing will have the status of a machine. There will be no creativity, only productivity. Instead of love, there will be fear and distrust. Instead of surrender, there will be submission. We will replace contact with isolation and joy with shame. Hope will cease to exist as a concept. We will cover the earth with steel and with concrete. This planet will be a factory farm producing morons to fuel and maintain the factory engines and feed our masters. There will be an electronic policeman in every head. Your children will be born in chains, live only to serve and die in anguish and ignorance. Look around you. The process is already in its final stages. Goddamn. Get so, like, it. what fucking year is he talking about? He's literally <laughs> basically says contact tracing and you will all be put in isolation. And that's, that's right. why when this happened, I'm like, I know this bitch. Um, I know this. Um, I know this entity that came close. And one of the things that when you realize that this is Fanny has all the best lines, I think. Um, but there's a bit where she says um, to Mr. Quimper, like, you, I remember you from the forest. You're a small little spirit. I know what you are. The forest was spil- filled with little spirits like you. These entities are spirits and jumped up ones at the moment because they've certainly stolen a march on us. But that's a really good point. When she, but One of the problematic cancelable things in there is that she's somehow Brazilian, but her grandmother is like a, um, like a Mazatec or Maya shaman, and and it's sort of like she's in the Mexican underworld, but she's like a um, Brazilian trans. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so yeah. it's kind of like some of the words are a bit clunky, but it's also you are talking about. We get where he's going and she and, and weirdly, it's um, 
I don't know if he knows this, but I think it's an excellent depiction of kind of like Mexican witchcraft or the Mexican um, underworld rather than anything that you'd see in like Candomblé or, or something in, in Brazil. Like it's, it's actually quite good um, curanderismo, but make it metal. Um, and and mm-hmm. so when, when Fanny's like, I know what you are, the forest was filled with little spirits like you. It's another way to remember that um, they are little spirits like the universe yeah. life and it's it there's this yeah there's hope yeah and it at the at the end you know you do find out that the archons themselves are kind of this uh this sort of sloughing off like a scab coming off of the universe's constant birthing right so the placental uh uh break off from our world comes in two forms it's the archons and then there's barbalith right and Barbalith, like they're they're both byproducts of this thing, and when you realize that it's just sort of a byproduct, like you know, when again, like when you pick a scab off or something, I think treating them as small is good for the mental and also good for it's actually just good praxis. Dare I use that word? But it's it's <laughs> it's. I mean, like they, they don't want to be. I mean, they all have Napoleon complexes, right? Like Fauci is literally four feet tall. Okay. So, (laughs) I mean, you know, these people are, are small in stature and in spirit and they're those little forest spirits that hitched a ride on, uh, on the train to the dark side because they thought they could get something out of it and you just have to not let them. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Anything else we want to say? We, we hit the two hour mark. Any other questions on, on your half of the swap cast? No, this is man. This has been such a privilege. Uh, I have, found so much value while we're you know trying to sell the invisibles i'm gonna maybe embarrass you a little bit but you know i signed up for the the premium membership uh in its early stages and i, I kind of went through each class as they came and um i'm so i i'm the kind of person who forgets a lot of details of things but i think i'm i'm good at remembering the gist of stuff um and so with each particular class uh i felt an actual positive change in my life every single time, including the controversial wealth class. But um, <laughs> I th- <laughs> that, wow. that was that was that was rough for some people. It was the idea of like you know you won't get cooties from engaging with certain thinkers and things. But that was big for me too. That was the last little puzzle piece that I needed in this whole thing of the idea of like okay, I'm not going to get sick by engaging with ideas that I don't agree with. So I thought that, I thought that was important. But anyway, my, my big point is that uh, I just love what you're doing. And uh, yeah, this has been one of the, one of the, the cool things. Everybody's been having a shitty 2020, but mine's pretty good now. So thank Aww, you. Oh, shucks. And, uh, and your new, well, give, give both podcasts and where people can find your books and so on. But you've got a new project that's making 2020 a little bit better too. So, uh, so give oh. us that. Thanks, man. Yeah, no. So my show is the JDO show, which is an interview series with uh, writers who are also my friends. Back in the past, I did interviews with, uh, you know, I did the whole thing, emailing their agent, and then I would interview them about their book. And it was so bloodless. And I don't know if you've ever had a guest who just won't give you anything. You know, like, there's nothing worse than a guest that just that just answers your question that just says yes or no. So I decided to, uh, you know, talk to other people. You're going to say something? Yeah, no, I know exactly what that is. And even when they don't realize it. So um, Rupert Sheldrake did that. 
And I think it's because he wasn't that, he, he's so used to some of his lines, like he has, and they're great. Like he's got them honed. So panpsychism and, and is the sun conscious and all those lines about, and they're so good at breaking people out of thinking materialistically. But he was one where it was kind of like, you're just saying the lines. And I think it's because he wasn't as, which is surprising, wasn't as au fait with podcasts because he's got a really good conversation series with Mark Vernon going at the moment where that doesn't happen. So, uh, mm-hmm. but I know exactly what you mean. I'm actually, I'm, that's why I wanted to ask you about the the new project, which you can tell me about in a minute. But the reason I've kind of been doing swap casts and solo shows is one, I need to get some information out to people before the space weather at the end of this month and the, um, the chaos that the U S in particular is about to go through with, um, however this shakes out and whatever your opinion of it is an attempted coup, like you are living through that. Mm -hmm. And so I want to give people things like the invisibles and and I want to return to them the idea that um, if you do conspiracy, right, it's, it is being aware of um, acting in class interest. Like it's a legitimate left critique because you're about to see it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really sure when I can, um, it hasn't felt right to be like, Oh, let's do a tarot episode now. Um, but I think it's funny. I think I need to put the material out in advance of it. And then when it's happening, I think that's what I need to do. <laughs> like shows uh-huh. on tarot and, and, and whatever, um, journeying and infusions and all the kind of like usual suspects. But it hasn't felt right now. Because 2020 has been, from a creative perspective, difficult to navigate, as I'm sure you would agree. But as, um, one, I'm going to ask you if you're bullish about novels in this moment. And two, tell us about the second podcast. Because I've only listened to... How many are out? I listened to the first one. I loved it. Uh, two, yeah, two. We're actually going to record. Yeah. yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna record our next episode actually right after I get off this call. So we'll have three out around the same time that this drops. So that that podcast is called No Country. I do it with a writer named Chris Sacknesson, who is just a fascinating guy. I I met him because he he blurbed my first novel, and uh, he's a he's a person from the old school of uh, of writing. He's in his sixties now. Um, his first novel was called Zanesville. And uh, when it came out, people thought that he was uh, a pseudonym for David Foster Wallace. And then other people thought that he was a collective of writers because they, they couldn't conceive that one person had written this just, you know, dense kaleidoscopic sci-fi fantasy. It's very invisible-ish actually. There's a little plug there, um, novel. And then, uh, he and I became friends at a convention and we talk on the phone all the time. And he has this amazing past where he was, he was born in the Bay area. And then he moved to the, uh, uh, the Solomon islands for a time um, and sort of engaged with uh, the people there. Cause he was a uh, shooting pictures for national geographic. And he has a conception of magic that is informed by the, the shamans of the tribe that he was in. Cause he was sort of, uh, given the the white guy initiation, which, you know, whatever that is, right? Um, but he sort of understands magic from a per- perspective that you and I would recognize. Um, and he's also somebody who just, you know, he's been to jail. He's done all sorts of things that I cannot say on a podcast because uh, I don't know what the statutes of limitations are, but a fascinating uh, sort of super secret agent type guy. Uh, and so our podcast is me talking to him uh, about things like place and our current moment and um, how to become 
how to feel like you have a home when you don't feel like you have a home. Because we, we call it no country because we both feel very sort of out of place. And I just moved back to Oklahoma and I'm becoming sort of embedded in this world where I feel very comfortable. And so I'm kind of in this great state for this podcast where I can articulate why I felt so out of place in places like Portland and El Paso and, and why this particular place works for me. And then him too, you know? So it's mostly a discussion of place. Now, as far as novels, I think that novels are definitely going to be big in the next 10 years. I just don't think that, I don't think that the current big five model is going to be the way that they're big. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I mean culturally big because yeah, it, uh, even if you get the CIA to print them, you still have the uh, opportunity to have a, it's funny, they're, they're analog now, again, like, I think the fact that it's a real object in most cases is important, but I think we've reached that moment, kind of we were talking about before about blogging and writing. I think we've reached a moment, we've reached the great promise of self and indie publishing. And when I say great promise, it's because we fucking need it now. Mm-hmm. If you look at not just the, it, it's, it's almost wrong to look at what the big five as a model in an industry is doing. It's to look at everything else and go, movies are shit, TV is shit. Like all this, other, it's all shit. Comics have collapsed. Um, comics have collapsed because, I mean, I don't read them, but apparently there's a whole, up, go woke go broke thing going on with them uh so where else where does where does the genuine um impulse a countercultural impulse come from and that's why i think i think things like novels even if you get the cia to print them i think it's an opportunity to have independent voice in there somewhere right because again if you're buying the physical book it is analog and there is something to uh there's something that the the perfume nationalist said on um twitter are you familiar with this guy Oh, you asked if I listened to his episode with um, Thaddeus of Unregistered, and I did. I listened to that. So now I am familiar with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this this guy, he's he's a wildcat. Uh, check it out if, if you want to. It's, you know, it's choppy waters. But um, he said something that really resonated with me, which was uh, most of the time, w- the best novel reading experiences of my life, I was bored at times. And uh, I've been going through the My Struggle series by Carl Ova Knausgaard. Um, and it is very boring, but it's also very addictive. So I think that introducing a little bit of like analog uh, things that require a commitment, that require the engagement of your imagination, and also at times a little bit of boredom, I think people are going to start gravitating towards that once they recognize that boredom. I'm not talking about like silly meditation stuff or whatever, but like actual boredom and investment creates uh, its own reward that's outside of the constant uh, dopamine rush. Yeah, I like that. It's really interesting. Um, if the novel in Jane Austen's day was electrifying because it was, it, it was a high technology object, right? Um, and and yeah, so yeah. It, would, it would trigger the dopamine, even her terrible books, right? Like, um, <laughs> But it was electrifying. It, it, it's kind of like it is an 18th century technology in, or 19th, if you're fair, in, in many respects. Uh, and so it's interesting that its value now is that it is. Um, so it was almost like a retraining of the mind because it trained it in an electrifying way. It was the Twitter of its day, like in, in mm-hmm. 
you know, because this is printing in general, but like a novel was a blockbuster. Uh, and now it's something, this is what I mean. I feel like the, the novel is, is, um, has come to save us again. Uh, yeah, I think so too. Like, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And it's, again, it's just this kind of reverse thing. And I think that a lot of writers who I interact with are still stuck on this idea that they're going to be Stephen King and they're going to live that kind of, you know, uh, the rock star life of the, you know, the, the paperback pulp dudes of the, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, which actually they're looking at through slightly rose colored glasses. Cause I don't think sure. people like Phil, Philip Dick had a great time back then, but, um, but I think that if authors in particular, to anybody out there who's listening who's a writer, I think if you sort of retrain it to think of yourself as doing uh, an act of, of magic, I think it works a lot better. And I think that if you think of it as pretentious as this might sound, but as something that is in its own way kind of saving the world, you're doing that much more than you are by, you know, dunking on Ben Shapiro on Twitter, 100%. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, speaking of books then, so we've, those are the two shows. This will all be in the show notes, of course. Um, where else can people find you, your books, other stuff you want to, to get out there? Yeah. So on Twitter, I am at BRB, like be right back, BRBJDO. I'm pretty active on Twitter, uh, even though I try not to be. I try not to be before a certain time of day, but I'm, I'm on there. Uh, the books... Um, my book, uh, the one that I talked about earlier, is called By the Time We Leave Here, We'll Be Friends, which I used to think it was cool to give my books really long titles. Um, another one's called Black Gum, um, and then another one's called A Minor Storm. And those are cool. Those are uh, fictionalized accounts of my times in Oklahoma with, uh, you know, with a, a kind of made-up character who's a sort of uh, redneck, dowser, shaman type guy. And so I really tried to kind of weave in, uh, you know, Oklahoma mythology uh, and, and make a, a system of magic that makes sense in that book for, you know, people who also like NASCAR and beer. Um, and then uh, Broken River is the, is, the, is the book company. But unfortunately, to my great shame, if you go to that website, it says under construction because I'm lazy. <laughs> 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 but there there's there's like 40 books um i'll get that up eventually so you know i know people listen to these months and months later so that's true i'll get up and do it and you sir where can people find you what books should they buy i have my own favorites but i'll, I'll let you do it uh you can get everything from runesoup.com i'm also still on twitter mostly just to dm with you at this stage <laughs> <laughs> that's cool that's cool yeah. well i i, I can't quit now yeah, or else Gordon, will, Gordon will fucking start to spiral. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was thinking about it as I was preparing for the show. I'm like, my spiciest DM rooms, like not necessarily bitchiest, but spiciest, are all with like straight men, either in a group or like you. Like, I'm looking down my list of DMs, I'm like, God, the bitchiest <laughs> people I know are straight men. <laughs> it's been weird to me. Out of all my DM. Um, yeah, bitchy though, we're just spicy. And right, that's important. Yes. Yeah. Extremely correct. A lot of us is crowing about being correct. Yeah, don't experience FOMO. It's not actually a good DM room to be in. Unless you're us. Yeah, exactly. Uh, runesoup.com. Uh, I, again, I'm on Twitter, Gordon underscore White, W-H-A-T-E. And, uh, and you can find, navigate to the books from 
runesoup.com. Uh, probably, to, if you want to do magic, then you buy two of them. You get Chaos Protocols and Pieces of Eight. If you want to know why you should do magic and, and how the universe is magical, um, Starships is, is a place to start. So for people who listen to a show that's kind of like about books, my most booky book is Starships so far. Excellent. All right. Well, hey, thanks again. Yeah, it was fun.